as if the church depends on this person or that person for anything. I mean, the the Lord, it's it's the Lord's church. If He wants to call more people, He can, and we shouldn't we shouldn't discourage it. I think that happens sometimes. I think some are discouraged from entering into whatever their vocation might be, or maybe they're badly formed. I mean, these are things we we do have some control over. Right. But in terms of trying to put a vocation where there isn't one, I mean, that's that that would be a big mistake. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Crab and the Cross podcast. I'm your host, Mary Rose, and today I'm sharing with you my conversation with Father Carter Griffin. Have you ever wondered what's in store for us with the next generation of priests? What kind of guy is applying to seminary these days? And what kind of guy is being rejected? And just what do they learn behind those four walls? Well, I sat down with Father Griffin, the rector of the St. John Paul II Seminary in Washington, D.C., to find out the answers to those questions and much more. We also had a really good discussion about the concepts of masculinity and femininity, what those terms mean, where they are manifested in the life of the church and in the lives of the saints. And he shares some thoughts about what he thinks the church's um, vision of the role of women in the church, the role of the lady in the church is going to look like um, you know, in this post-Vatican II era. I think I listened more and talked less in this interview than in any of the interviews I've done so far. And that's just a testament to the eloquence of Father Griffin and the intelligence of Father Griffin. And I also just really appreciate his humility because before the interview started, I ran through his bio with him and I did not mention that he has a doctorate in theology. And he did not bother to to insert that or to correct me. It wasn't until a couple minutes into the interview that that uh, he mentioned um, what he did his dissertation on. I was like, oh, whoops, probably should have mentioned that part. Um, but anyways, it was a great interview. Uh, a lot in here, I think, to unpack for discussion. So definitely feel free to drop a comment under the YouTube recording of this or on my Instagram at the Crab and the Cross. You can also tweet me at Crab and the Cross. There is a brief comment that Father Griffin makes in the interview about the sex abuse scandals that have come to light recently. And at the end of this interview, I want to make a brief statement of clarification that I think will be helpful. Um, I don't mean that as a dig at Father Griffin. Um, I hope that he would agree with what I say, Um, but it's just something I've been pondering and I think it's worth mentioning. So listen to the whole interview, everything in its full context, and then stick around at the end for um, just a few closing thoughts that I have. And now my conversation with Father Carter Griffin. Father Carter Griffin is the rector of the St. John Paul II Seminary in Washington, D.C. He's a graduate of Princeton University, a former naval officer, and the author of three books, including his most recent, Forming Fathers, Seminary Wisdom for Every Priest. Father Griffin, thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. It's good to be with you. So how long have you been with the seminary? Uh, we are in our 12th year um, of the seminary. It's a pretty new seminary, and I've been here from the beginning. I was first vice rector and now the rector. Okay. And so before that, were you just an ordinary parish priest or were you I was, teaching? I was in a parish before that at uh, St. Peter's on Capitol Hill uh, for one <laughs> one very wonderful year. And then before that, I was doing doctoral studies in Rome. Oh, okay. Uh, where were you getting your doctorate? I did my doctorate at Santa Croce University, a Holy University of Holy Cross there. And it was in moral theology. That's when I did my work on um, celibacy and fatherhood in the priesthood. And that later became a book, Why Celibacy? Okay, gotcha. Um, so I assume that you and some of your fellow priests at the seminary are are the ones who are reviewing the applications of men applying for the seminary. So are there any trends you've seen in the kind of men who are applying for seminary who are entering seminary? Or does it really just run the gamut of, of a diverse type of people? No, I think there are definitely trends. They're they're like long-term kind of broad arch kind of trends. And then there are kind of more near-term trends, which are always a little bit trickier to to discern, you know, because sometimes it could, it could just be um, kind of a year or two of, of a certain kind of, you know, it's not really a, a trend. But long-term, certainly, I would say for decades now, um, the young men who are coming to the seminary, and I think this is pretty much national, at least in diocesan seminaries, uh, 
are are very earnest. They're very faithful. They're looking for, um, they're, you know, they're they're not interested in anything other than kind of the the full truth of the Catholic of the Catholic Church, you know, from beginning to end. Um, so they're orthodox. They really want, I think, especially since two thousand two, when I was actually in the seminary, and I certainly would count myself in this group, uh, seeing all of the the scandals and everything like that, really wanting to be part of. The solution uh, and wanting to not not the you know maybe there's sometimes kind of a messiah complex but sure. but hopefully it's more often just a, a well-intentioned desire to to come to the aid of the church in a sense you know so I think that is very clear um, I think they're very well-intentioned in this sense um, there there are very few I guess social benefits if you would call it that to becoming a priest today right um, and so you know you're not there may have been a time where some people might be tempted to go to the seminary because it's a it's a stable and socially prestigious, you know, position to have. And all of, obviously those things, you know, that kind of approach isn't really um, there anymore. I think almost all of them, especially in more recent years, almost all of them in their vocation story will talk about the, uh, the witness of at least one priest in their life. I guess this has always been the case, but I think it's become sure. especially the case in recent years as more and more sort of young, faithful, uh, kind of, you know, um, priests who are interested in the beauty and the liturgy, priests who are interested in, in preaching with love, but also preaching some of the difficult topics. These are the things that tend to be inspiring for the younger men. And more and more of them, I think, mention that uh, in their in their vocation story. Um, so I think those are some of them. I think they often come in with some experience of of prayer and uh, spirit, you know, often adoration is a part of their, uh, is a part of their their background and part of their vocation story. Um, clearly a desire for beautiful liturgy. Uh, mm -hmm. Many of them are attracted to the traditional Latin mass. Um, not, I wouldn't say a majority, at least okay. at this seminary, but certainly there's a sizable minority. And perhaps at some seminaries, it's even more than that. And I think one other thing is there is a, um, a kind of healthy skepticism about the wider culture. Um, I wouldn't call it a rejection of the world necessarily. Um, maybe it can border on that sometimes. But usually it's not that. It's more just kind of there's a certain um, savviness, I suppose, and kind of wariness that they've that they've gained because they are part of a generation that has been sold a bill of goods, which is which is not real and not satisfying. And they see their friends, you know, their levels of depression and they see the suicide and they see the violence around us and they see and they say this is something is not working out there. You know, and I think a lot of these guys are coming looking for something very different and embracing a very countercultural kind of life. Right. So when they come from just the ordinary culture into this seminary life, is there like a real struggle to transition to that kind of regimented lifestyle of prayer? You know, I would say maybe very briefly for some of them at the beginning, but I would say most of them soak it up. They, they, yeah. They're they're looking often for I mean, we have a, we have, I would say a moderately strict rule of life. I mean, it's not, it's not like back in the day or anything like that, but it's, it certainly is there's regularity, there's structure. You're getting up at the same time. You have to make your bed in the morning. You have to go down to prayer. <laughs> and I find that these young guys just are soaking that up. And a part of that probably does come from my experience in the Navy. Yeah. Uh, but I think that too, is like, there's something about the military that often attracts young men because it, in part, because it does give them a certain order and structure and regimen in their lives when maybe they didn't have that um, earlier. And so I think the, the, there's definitely some of those transitions, but for the most part, I would say the vast majority of cases, guys, you know, after even just a couple of months are already just settled in and they really, really enjoy. In fact, sometimes they even, and sometimes we have to kind of make sure that they know that this is not the rest of their life. You know, mm -hmm. that this is, the purpose of this is to build habits, but then they go out and exercise. And so when they go away on breaks, or even just go away for a weekend, you know, part of it is talking about how are, are the habits being, are the habits being built? Are the, are the, are the roots being planted, you know, so that you can live this way in whatever way you decide to live it, but that you are actually building habits that are going to help you for the rest of your life. Right. So obviously you're there to spiritually formate them, but do you ever just feel sometimes like you kind of have to be like their parent, you know, like when you're saying, clean up your room, make your bed, like, do you, yeah you know, sometimes have to get into the weeds of like their, their lifestyle habits. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I mean, especially at this level, because wh where I am at John Paul II seminary, it's a, it's a college seminary and and we also have pre-theologians. So that means we have guys who are in college. I mean, 18 to 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. And we have some guys, um, usually maybe 10 to 12 who will be pre-theologians. So these guys 
we just call that somebody who's already already has a college degree, mm-hmm. has been out in the world working for, you know, typically two, three, four years, something like that. Usually not, you know, the older guys, there's a different seminary for those guys. But um, so they, these guys come with a little bit of world experience and, and so forth. But they're all young. Uh, and even some of those pre-theologians have never really gotten kind of that experience of deep human formation. So yeah, we do we do everything from, um, you know, we have, I have a, a, a a, a talk every year on, on etiquette where we're talking about table manners and we're talking mm-hmm. about how to write a thank you note and yeah. we go through like different life skills that they should learn. Everyone knows how to either learn how to change a tire or play chess or whatever it might really? be. Really? You teach them how to change oh, yeah. tire oh, in yeah. seminary? Definitely the weeds. Now we don't have like a, a class on teaching, you know, chess or something like that, but there's yeah. like a couple of guys who enjoy chess and other guys will join them and learn how to play the, whatever. I mean, it, that's just a couple of silly examples, but a lot of it is just human skills, you know, being able to listen well, being able to uh, speak publicly with some confidence, being, um, you know, learning if there's any questions of, uh, if they're learning how to how to work hard, you know, like growing in, in industry and diligence. So a lot of the human virtues are, are what we're forming here. So we're certainly doing the spiritual, you know, daily adoration, always kind of obviously daily mass and confession regularly and devotion to Our Lady, all those things you want. But then also a lot of the human things are being, as well as, of course, they're going right. and doing their philosophy classes. Right. So do you tend to have more men entering like right there at the, you know, 18, 19 entering college level? Is that the majority in that seminary? I would say of any, for for example, this coming year, we have 17 men starting and of those four or five are freshmen, Okay, uh, a handful are, and then, you know, a number are transfer students. So they'll start in their sophomore year typically. And then a a half a dozen or so are the, are the pre-theologians that I mentioned. I could see someone making an argument that, you know, if you have a young man who enters seminary at 18, you know, he's, and then he presumably goes all the way through, he gets ordained around age 26, that he's not going to really have the life experience to minister to people kind of in the grittiness of everyday life. Like he can probably give great sermons on teachings of the faith and he can, you know, obviously be a joyful witness, but that when it kind of gets you know, getting down and dirty with people with their problems, you know, marital struggles and things like yeah. that. Like he's not going to have any idea how to uh, minister to those kinds of people. Do you think that's a real concern? It's a great question. And and I'll be honest with you. It's a, not only a question that I had uh, before starting in this work, but it was a conviction that I had. Like, I mean, I think it was a little bit arrogant because I sort of, when I was asked, you know, to do this, I was saying like, I'm not even sure I agree with the idea of college seminaries, mm-hmm. let alone, you know, have to work in one. And um, I've become a real convert in that regard on um, a number of in a number of ways. First of all, I always just thought it was just too young, you know, like yeah. is this you need to even just to be formed. Um, and I've realized more and more it's not for everybody, for sure. But for the guys for whom it's a good fit, um, it's an ideal place to be formed because it's it's a very and especially in a place like this. And there are a number of places like this around the country where you are formed in house, but then you go to a regular college campus. So you're interacting with women, you're interacting with other lay people, you're kind of getting the college experience to some extent, but you're kind of the center of the center of gravity of your life is here with this group of men who are earnestly seeking holiness. And I mean, they're a lot of fun and they, you know, enjoy sports and all the rest of it, but they're also like praying every day together. And it's kind of like this environment, a very family like environment that is ideal for actually, you know, you, you think about kind of the environments that it, an 18 year old kid is thrown into coming straight from the home into a college where, I mean, they could be precisely being formed in all the worst virtues in some right, regards. Right. And, and then we sort of say, that's the normal and this is the abnormal. And I think we've, we've got that reverse. So even if this weren't preparing men for the priesthood it was just a place to be formed humanly and spiritually as you grow up. I mean, I can't imagine a better. Um, and so I think that's part of why I think the college seminary has a place, but even in terms of your specific question, my experience with these guys is that they do live life. I mean, they have, you know, their their experience. I mean, I, I, the number of times it's been, and I used to, I think, say this, but, you know, they've never paid a utility bill. You know, <laughs> they've never paid a water bill. And I remember thinking, like, what is the magic of a water bill? Like, I've paid a lot of water bills, and I was still, you know, just as much of a goofball afterwards as before. And, like, the students would always say, like, why aren't you teaching us how to do our taxes in school? I'm like, here's how you do your taxes. Step one, go to an accountant. 
step two, they do your taxes. Like this is not like what life is all about. Right, exactly. And so the kinds of things that, I mean, lay people are not going to be coming to a priest asking them, you know, how to pay their water bill. I mean, they're going to be asking about their experience of love and of relationships, their, their, their prayer life, you know, their difficulties in their families. Well, these guys are going through all that stuff. They're growing up. And and in fact, if anything, because hopefully they're being nourished by grace and living in a virtuous way, they're actually dealing with those things at an earlier age in a more mature way than somebody who, you know, starts formation at the age of 25, where you have to unlearn a whole lot of bad habits and kind of maybe get bad memories out and all kinds of things that you have to do if you're formed later. So there are actually drawbacks to that too. And I guess just practically speaking, I've seen some of these guys go through and get ordained. Um, and I also know a lot of priests who went through college seminary themselves. And these are some of the finest, most helpful, holiest, prayerful guys we have, you know? And, and so I think it's, again, it's not the right place for everybody, but right. for, for many guys it is. And, in, and for those for whom it is, it's actually an ideal environment to, to become the kind of priest that you're talking about. Right. No, I mean, I can attest personally, I've known a lot of guys enter specifically the seminary you work at. Mm-hmm. I've also known a lot of guys leave that seminary, but yeah. all of them, or at least the vast majority of them have come out, whether they come out priests or just entering the the, the world as a lay person, like have come out better men. Um, and it's, it's kind of hard to put my finger on like what it is that makes them better, but there's just a, there's a confidence, there's um, kind of a, I don't know, a, a way of listening in the world where they're not so like agitated all the time. Yeah. Um, and just like a, yeah, a real skill set that they come out with for sure. And obviously a deep spirituality as well. And one thing you just said is kind of also really important to say is that, you know, when they come in at 18 or at any age, I mean, the first, the first goal here really is just get stable and sort of stabilize and, you know, prayer life and everything like that. But then the second goal is to discern if this is the right place for you. And a lot of guys, especially the younger ones, come through only about about half, maybe a little more, but about half of, of the guys who come in at 18 go into theology four years later, which I mean, and that's about the national average. So that's about normal. And I would say that's actually really healthy, you know, because oh, okay. especially at that young age, you really don't know. I mean, there's certainly the Lord has led you to that point, but you don't know if you're called to be a priest yet. And um, so we try to form an environment where that is a very free decision. In other words, there's no kind of hidden pressures or subtle, you know, like it has to be a very like we're on the same we're on the same team here. We're trying to figure out what the Lord wants you to do, you know, and and I think they experience that freedom. And then so when guys leave, I mean, they, in fact, a few days ago or about a week ago, we had a, a gathering of the guys who came for that first class when they when we first opened in 2011 uh-huh. and um, 13 of the guys came who were not were not priests, you know, but okay. um, well, I know I take it back, like eight or nine of them weren't priests and then three or four priests came. And um, it was great. These guys were great friends. And I think it was a really healthy feeling, you know, that there's a free, there's a freedom for them to discern. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, there's, there's definitely been some religious communities in the past um, that are kind of known for putting a pressure on people and kind of almost like speaking in place of the Holy Spirit, like we really think that you have this calling and you should join us. And there's something kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say maybe cultish is too strong of a word, but there's something there that's, that's not healthy. Yeah. A little, a little emotional, manipulative. Yeah. Manipulative. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, it's a big, it's a big, uh, it's, it's hard, you know, and especially we're, we're privileged here to have, we, we have Washington and then a number of other dioceses send here. But I've never gotten the feeling from um, the bishops or vocation directors from any of those dioceses that like, you know, make it work. We need this guy through kind of thing. And I think that might sometimes happen at some seminaries. I've never experienced that myself. Yeah, it's a tricky thing because obviously having vocations is a sign of of health. But at the same time, like you don't want to be you don't want to be a numbers game where it's like, here's our quota. We have to meet our quota each year. You know, five people ordained every year. Yeah, you know, and I think there could be a subtle, um, I guess, pride or or certainly human perspective in that, you know, as if the church depends on this person or that person for anything. I mean, the the Lord, it's his, it's the Lord's church. If He wants to call more people, He can, and we shouldn't we shouldn't discourage it. I think that happens sometimes. I think some are discouraged from entering into whatever their vocation might be, or maybe they're badly formed. I mean, these are things we we do have some control over. Right. But in terms of trying to put a vocation where there isn't one, I mean, that's that that would be a big mistake and then nobody wins he's unhappy the people he serves are unhappy you know the church is poorly for i mean we we may have more numbers but we don't have the right numbers right right so 
Are there any, um, you know, when men apply and let's say they get rejected or deferred, are there any specific things that might show up on an application that are kind of red flags or maybe just a sign that like, no, right off the bat, this is not the place for you? <laughs> there sure are. <laughs> oh, please still. <laughs> How long do we have? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, it is, it's tricky because there is certainly an art to it. It's not a science. There are red objective red flags, which would mean under no circumstances. And yeah. I don't, you probably don't need to hear what those are. Yeah, those yeah, are pretty yeah. obvious, you know, but the ones that are kind of, well, I mean, start with something fairly innocuous, but like debt, like someone who's in, who has a lot of debt, you know, from, from oh, college okay, or from, yeah. you know, whatever, from graduate school or something like that, that would be a, a, it's not a red flag, but it just might mean that they're not able to come into the seminary at that time. So that would be kind of. But, you know, maybe more personal issues, um, mental health struggles would obviously be one, even physical health. Like if somebody is physically not able to do, to do the work, um, that that would certainly be an issue we'd have to look carefully at, um, mental health issues. Uh, anyone who has sort of signs of any kind of sexual addictions or is not, not, not that they, someone has to be perfect in this regard, but what it is, you know, because we ask a lot of questions about that, you know, that yeah. has to be, there has to be a real sense that they, if they're not in fact living a completely chaste life, that they're certainly moving quickly in that direction, right? Um, if there are sexual irregularities, and for example, if there's a same-sex attraction, which is deep-seated, that would be something that, you know, the church has already said, we should not be admitting those men to the, to the mm -hmm. seminary. Um, I think issues where, um, um, well, I mentioned the, mentioned the mental health, but one of the things might be, especially in today's day and age, we seem to see a lot of kind of OCR, uh, OCR, OCD type scrupulosity sort of yeah. things like these would be issues that would be really hard to live in this kind of environment. And then other more vague things that are kind of red flags. And that's not everything, but that's just kind of a sampling right. but would be things like somebody who doesn't have a lot of friends. You know, that yeah. would be I would consider that to be more of a kind of a classic red flag. Like it doesn't mean that he's impossible for him to come to the seminary. Right. But like, what's the reason for that? Why don't you have any good friends? You know, right, um, right. are you afraid of opening up to somebody? Do you, you know, do you lack just ordinary interpersonal skills? And that would be another one kind of awkwardness and conversation would certainly be a red flag. Mm -hmm. You know, those kinds of things we'd be looking for as well. Their family relationships, you know, if they have very poor relationships with their parents. Um, again, it doesn't mean that they can't be admitted, but we'd want to look at what's going on there and what effect that that has had on them. Maybe they need some time, you know, kind of more some healing before they come to the seminary. Right. So it's a pretty broad range of things that we look at um, in in the, in the whole application process. And there's tons of interviews and psychologicals and background checks and all these kinds of things that are part of it, too. I often say, like, when I was in the Navy, I got top secret clearance and it was harder to get into the seminary than it was to get, <laughs> <laughs> than it was to get a top secret clearance to fire tomahawks in the Navy. So. <laughs> wow. Um yeah, I mean that it's it's tough though because I think a lot of the things you mentioned um, are probably going to be present with a lot of people at least on some level. I mean, so many people struggle with, you know, maybe not severe mental illness, but depression, anxiety. Mm. You know, maybe even OCD, religious scrupulosity is very common amongst people who are kind of going through a new conversion. You know, sure. um, would you ever accept someone on like conditional basis, like we want you to be in therapy or something, or is that more like you get healed and then you come? Yeah, um, we wouldn't accept somebody who's not coming to the seminary right. We wouldn't sort of accept them and then like defer them for a year. Well, again, yeah. it wouldn't be that. It That would be, well, why don't you tr try this for a year and then we'll look at your application again next year. That would be that. But no, we certainly, like you said, I mean, this is, that's why it's an art, not a science, right? So you have to like make these judgment calls and clearly they're going to be people who are struggling in different ways. And it doesn't mean that they can't come to the seminary. We have um, a lot of resources here to help. We have a someone who is a very reliable psychologist that mm -hmm. we often will use. But the idea would be you don't. Uh, if somebody is is in need of chronic or, or ongoing therapy at, for very serious matters, that wouldn't be the time to accept somebody into the seminary, right? right? So it'd be more kind of looking at those uh, in between areas and sort of and then try to get a good an, an, uh, diagnosis and analysis and and try to work from there. So, for example, if we often have people who, as you know, um, this younger generation, maybe when they're growing up, they went through a difficult period of, of depression, you know, um, maybe even self-harm at some point, you know, not suicide, but, but I mean, suicide attempts, but maybe some, you know, that, that happens sometimes, you know, and you have to look at how long ago that was, how much, how, the, how much healing has happened since then. It's a pretty tough world to grow up in these days. Um, they've been exposed to a lot of really nasty stuff at a really early age. And these guys, I mean, some of them come with an almost miraculous kind of, you know, they've been preserved <laughs> from a lot of that stuff. And yeah, I mean, more than you might think actually come that way. But 
obviously, we're also getting people from this generation, and they've been hurt in a lot of different ways. They're exposed to pornography when they were, you know, eight years old by their older brother's friend or whatever it was, you know, and just stuff that has happened to them. And you're like, gosh, these poor guys. Yeah. Um, and so for those, that particular group of, of guys coming in, you know, we'd have to, we'd have to pay, pay more attention to and making sure that they're getting whatever help they might need. And, and oftentimes, it's just help from the Lord, you know, I mean, the Lord just heals as you grow in the, in the life of prayer, uh, and with good spiritual direction and regular reception of the sacraments. And oftentimes there's a lot of liberation that just comes through that. Right. Right. Um, I want to just go back to one thing you had mentioned, um, which is men with same sex attraction applying yeah. to seminary. Um, I've spoken to some people who, uh, have same sex attraction and they've made the case that if we are strict on this prohibition, instead of, you know, weeding out all gay men from the priesthood, we're just going to create kind of a culture of a closet where there's a lot of men who just don't disclose that that's something that they struggle with. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess a couple of main thoughts. One would be, um, I mean, I think that the question is, should men with deep-seated same-sex attraction be in the priesthood? And if the answer is no, then we certainly can't say, well, because some might come in anyway, we'll just go ahead and not have, you know what I mean? And right. I firmly believe that the answer is no there, not because they're necessarily you know bad people or anything like that. I think they can become great saints and precisely through this cross, they can become a great saint. Um, but there are particular temptations. There are particular spiritual struggles in the priesthood and kind of the emotional, uh, um, the emotional kind of struggles that people with same-sex attraction often have I would say almost always have based upon that particular cross are things that are not compatible with the priesthood, you know, in, in, I mean, they're, 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 they make life difficult anyway, but when someone is then put into a position of spiritual authority like that, it just, as we have seen over and over again, uh, and the most egregious manifestation of that, of course, is the, is the, um, homosexual predatory behavior of young men that happened for decades, you know, and that, which was 80% of that sexual abuse crisis. I mean, that's black and white. The numbers are there. That was not pedophilia for the most part, you know, and that's a hard thing to say. It's a hard thing for someone with same-sex attraction to hear. Certainly it is, you know, certainly there are many priests with same-sex attraction who never did anything wrong. And I, you know, there's no question about that. But the fact when you're looking at those kind of numbers, I mean, the fact that there are still some out there saying that we should be admitting openly, you know, people who are struggling with this in a very serious way seems to me not realistic um, and not fair to the young men that would be preyed upon perhaps one day. Um, and, and also a, there's a kind of naivete, I suppose, about the thought, well, because this was, the, this was the naivete that led to so many men with these, with these struggles coming into the priesthood is the thought that, well, if they're in a celibate vocation, everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And now we, now, now, now where we are. Um, so no, I definitely do not think, so if the answer is that, that these individuals, um, who are called to be great saints, but if they shouldn't be priests, then we shouldn't let them into the, into the seminary. Then the answer needs to be, there needs to be better screening in the seminary. And I think that that has largely happened in many places. And, you know, in this idea of being in a closet, I think, I mean, maybe there are some who are able to live that degree of a double life or that degree of kind of a repression of what's going on. But in this kind of environment here, I think it would be very difficult. I mean, I'm sure that, I'm sure that it can happen, you know, in, um, but I think it'd be pretty rare. Um, and so somebody comes in, first of all, when they f are being interviewed at the first time and we're asking, and several people are asking very deep and probing questions. Um, if, if they know that they're, that there's same sex attraction going on and they're lying through all of that, it, it's going to show up in other ways, you mm -hmm. know, so they, and they haven't been coached in any way. Typically they're, these are just good, innocent young people asking, right. you know, asking for an application or interested in being a priest. And so they're going to say, and they do say what's going on in their life and where their attractions are. And, and there can be some, you know, milder forms where, where it's not really like true deep-seated same-sex attraction. It's more like, you know, maybe some insecurities about their own body mm -hmm. where they look at, but there's not a romantic interest. I mean, so we're looking at, there are, there's a broad range of things we're looking at to, for what that, what that means, deep-seated same-sex attraction. And we're not just sort of saying like, you know, the, you know, one time you looked at one website, you know, three right. years ago, you can't, you know, it's not like that. It's a pretty, I think, thorough look at look into things, and so I would say that I think you typically can, in fact, prevent individuals with those struggles to be priests if the right questions are asked at an early enough stage by enough people, and you live in an environment like this where if somebody's kind of living under the radar, I mean, you just you can't you won't make it a month, you won't right, make it two right. weeks, right? So I think that's what you need is those is those two things: solid um, sort of screening, and then 
a kind of a solid environment, a very masculine, fun, you know, brotherly environment where that those sort of things are just going to kind of percolate to the surface if they're there. Right. That makes sense. Um, okay. So switching gears a little bit, um, I want to talk to you about this idea of masculinity uh, and fatherhood. This is something that obviously it's a big question in our culture right now, but I'm not even really thinking about it from the angle of like, you know, how do we deal with transgender individuals? Um, because I think that's kind of a separate issue, but even just in the ordinary person, um, you know, men are men, women are women, masculinity, we associate with men, femininity, we associate with women. Uh, but what really are those terms? Like, what do they mean? Do you think that masculinity has like an objective definition apart from just a male who has achieved, you know, virtue? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's uh, in two minutes or less, right? So yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Still your whole know, thesis. I'm <laughs> well, I mean, throw, throw out a couple of ideas and maybe this can be the, you know, spark the conversation a little bit. I would say that masculinity and femininity are different from male and female, mm. right? Uh, male and female are specifically about um, kind of the objective. And in, since we're talking about human, you know, and we're talking about male and female, that's, an, a, that's a biological thing. This, uh, this creature is male and this creature is female. Um, and those are... Uh, then expressed, right? Ma the way that ma maleness is expressed, we call masculinity. The way but females is expressed, we call femininity. And masculinity and femininity are therefore grounded in the biological, but they're also heavily conditioned by social and cultural norms. Yeah. Right. So the, how masculinity is lived out in this culture will be very different in that culture. But it's not. But both of them are still grounded in the same biological reality, which means that there is something we can say is in common between them. Like we can say there's something in common with femininity, whether it's lived, you know, in the 13th century in the Amazon or the 29th century, you know, in Europe right. or whatever, right? There's going to be something that grounds them together. And then, so, there, so you have the biology, you have kind of the culture and social norms that kind of modify that. And then you have how it's lived out in the individual, um, you know, and, and how a male lives out his masculinity is going to, even in the same culture, is obviously there's going to be a huge range within that, right? And right. the same thing with a woman living out her femininity. And in that sense, in terms of the kind of the features of those masculinity, there's going to be some overlap there where you can have, I mean, you know, think about historical examples of, of, of men, you know, in very nurturing kind of roles, you know, historically speaking, which often would otherwise have been filled by, by women mm -hmm. or women, you know, abbesses who had, you know, <laughs> who had jurisdictional power over priests, you know, in parts of Europe in the, in the Middle Ages, whatever. Like you can see these clear... But those are like individual cases um, of living out their femininity and the different and, and the masculinity. So I think that that's the overall the overall kind of schema that I think is most accurate. Because what happens today so often is that everything becomes kind of um, uh, it just sort of pulled apart. So you have kind of you have your biology over here, you have kind of the cultural pressures here, and you have your individual choices here, and they never touch each other. And that's a big problem. And that's why I think people feel so dislocated from their own gender today often. Is because we've sort of set up this thing, which is just, is this radical autonomy. You know, you've seen like the gender gender uh, bread person or things like <laughs> that, or, the, or the unicorn. You know, yeah, has, like, yeah, yeah. Has all these different spectra. And like a child is looking at this unicorn and be like, I have to choose where I fall. And I mean, the child's like nine years old. You right. know, and it's like you have to figure out where you are on these six different spectra. And right, right. There's something incredibly hard about that. But anyway, I would say that. So then, given that schema, I would say masculinity tends to be. And I would think, you know, this is kind of part of what I did my dissertation on, but I think that there is something to be said for saying that the marital act, the sexual act, actually in some ways does represent something about male and female that goes beyond the sexual act, right? That the male is 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 more is more uh, outward and initiating, you know, the woman is more receptive. Um, and um, and so if you think about kind of the uh, and if you think about way that some of the virtues that are expressed in that, and, and I think that this would be backed up by a lot of data, right? They say that the, the most sexually differentiated organ after the sexual organs is the brain, right? Mm -hmm. That men and women have very different features in their brains. And part of those, I think, have, have developed over time to help with these different ways of living out kind of that, you know, the male tends to be more more aggressive, uh, more manip you know, wanting to manipulate the environment around him, or, you know, you know, the idea of protecting kind of the high value uh, <laughs> part of the species, if you will, which is the female, and that's across different species. 
whereas the, the woman tends to be more um, inwardly protective and, and nurturing. Um, I mean, these are things that are not, we read into them our kind of modern stereotypes and we sort right, of say there right. must be something wrong because, well, this means that the woman is supposed to be, you know, submissive and at home and, right. you know, not, <laughs> and that's not necessarily the case, but these are features that I think if we're going to live out our masculinity and femininity to the, in our individual ways, that we don't want to deny what we're kind of, how we're built. And so like sort of seeing these different ways of living it out and then realizing that as you grow in sanctity, the way we understand, I think the human person you know, you um, you actually start to take on the best characteristics of the other gender, right? So that so that as a ma- as a man who's hopefully strong and protective and all that sort of stuff, and as he grows in holiness, he also becomes more and more tender and nurturing, right? right? And as a woman grows in holiness, she becomes more, um, you know, able to uh, uh, you know interact with the, in the environment in a more in in even a more aggressive way, but for the sake of good ends, you know, and things like that. So I right. I think that there is something to kind of the differences um, that are objective. But I also think that needs to be modified by human creativity and freedom. Right. Yeah, I think you made me think of like St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. Like St. Yeah. Teresa of Avila is tough. Like yeah. she's a tough lady, you know, and right. John of the Cross, he is, he's tender, he's sensitive, he's, you know, I mean, his whole spirituality is that kind of spousal spirituality, which you would expect more in a, in a um, I guess, in a woman, but sure. they kind of yeah. do have the, those opposite characteristics in a sense. Definitely. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed, and I, I see this especially in conservative Protestant circles, is that they kind of add a moral dimension to aspects of masculinity and femininity. So if we have kind of these stereo, maybe stereotypes of what men are and what women are, if a woman maybe presents more masculine, I don't know, personality characteristics, uh, that it gets seen as like sinful in some way or Mm. if a man has more like you know traditionally feminine personality characteristics that's also labeled as as sinful in some way um so i'm wondering from your perspective especially as a moral theologian do you think we ever can run into the territory of of sin or tendency to sin if if we're not fitting in with kind of the gender norms so to speak no, I, I mean, I, I think I would be very reluctant to say that there's, you know, kind of moral, there's a moral dimension to that. I mean, I suppose there could be in an accidental or circumstantial way. I mean, somebody may be, you know, uh, just kind of rebelling for the sake of rebelling, you right. know, and, and causing confusion in others or whatever it might be, or, you know, wanting to be deliberately, um, uh, um, I forget the word I'm looking for, but I mean, it's just, just sort of, uh, you know, count, countercultural in a Right. In an unhealthy way. Right. I mean, right. I suppose that there may be sort of moral moral considerations to be considered there. But certainly the fact that a woman is more, as you uh, you know, kind of, it, it, you know, doing things and, and, and acting in certain ways that are kind of traditionally more masculine it, in, in itself. I think oftentimes those are I mean, as you said about St. Teresa of Avila, often the saints have have those characteristics, you know, both men and women. And so how could we possibly say that there was a moral moral dimension to it? It would have to be kind of what is the motivation for it and what are the circumstances for it? You know, right. and are, there, are there circumstances that kind of give a, a moral modification to it? Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any harm. I mean, my personal perspective is that a lot of what we've classified as gender norms really are just personality characteristics and, and interests. So, you know, if a man likes to, I don't know, like if you have maybe you have a, a male child who likes to play with the toy kitchen, you know, and you have the female child who likes to play with the trucks. It's like they're they're not engaging in this like you know subversive gender bending right. behavior. Right. They're just you know gravitating towards what they enjoy, and there's not really a a morality to that, or really a, a strict gender. You know, they're not strictly gendered actions in the way that right. like presenting yourself physically as the opposite gender might be. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, I, I could completely agree with that. I It is interesting, though, when they've tried to do these studies and how the children will not cooperate with kind of the, the gender <laughs> benders, you know, like they'll have the, the boys who are raised this way. And sure enough, like after a few years, like he's always gravitating to these kinds of toys or the girl, you know, and it's just going to drive them crazy. But I think there is something deeply ingrained in us, you know, that's 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 written deep into our nature. But like you said, it's not going to be it's not going to be 100 percent of the time. That's why. I think while there are kind of some of these characteristics that are masculine and feminine, there are physical differences in masculine and feminine. Um, and I think evolutionary biology, you know, has kind of moved in, in these different directions. But the expression of that individually has going to be a wide, wide range, I think. Right, right. Yeah. So I want to, you know, going back, one thing that might be sort of, in, you know, the, um, as you're talking about the moral considerations, the only one thing I might, I might think would be if, 
if a woman, for example, not like transvestite, but like as we're dressing in a way that's very sort of aggressively masculine in a way that could give the wrong impression about her, I could see that being something or a man doing so, you know, with with clothing that is very feminine or something like that, even if he's not trying to sort of cross-dress or anything like that. Right. There still could be some confusion, perhaps, especially in today's day and age. I was having a conversation recently with a priest who's trying to navigate a situation at a uh, wedding where he wants to have his best man be a woman. And not because she's like identifying with a man or whatever, oh, okay. but it's because it's somebody that he you know knew well and he wants okay, to yeah. the best man. It'll Most be friend. like whatever. Um and I and one of his concerns is what is the message that this is sending today, you know? And it's I think it's a legitimate question. And originally right. they wanted her to be wearing like a tuxedo, like the men, you know. And, and I so, actually did. I have a really close male friend who I've known since high school, got married a couple of years ago, and I I tried to beg him. I was like, "Can I please be one of your groom's women?" <laughs> but just just because like I knew him much more than I knew the bride, so yeah, he, yeah, yeah, he yeah. declined. But he did let me give a speech, so. Well, and I, yeah, and I do think that that will some, I think with some of these things, because there's a lot more interaction and a lot more, uh, many more friendships being built up between men and or boys and girls, and then later men and women, um, that, you know, some of these, some of these traditions, for example, around marriage are probably going to change, right. where it won't be a statement anymore, it'll just be you have your six Right, know, right. I mean, yeah, it's not it's not like it's a liturgical part of the ceremony where right, you have to have your right. best man, your best woman and your bridesmaid. I mean, you don't have to have bridesmaids or groomsmen at all. At right? all. Yeah, you just need a, two witnesses. Yeah. So it's we're, we're in a time where this, this things can send a can send a signal and people are going to be reading into almost everything that we say and do. So right. in that consideration, when you're talking about can things be moral in themselves, I don't think the thing itself is but it might it might have sort of circumstances that make right. it, you know. Well, actually, it is interesting because I think about probably about a century ago was when women started in the Western culture, like started wearing pants. And that was yeah. a big controversy. Like, is yeah. she presenting herself as, as a man? And I think nowadays, like nobody, I mean, there's a couple of like kind of weird cultures, conservative cultures where like the women don't wear pants, but nowadays like no one blinks an eye. If you see a woman wearing a pair, a pair of like slacks or whatever. Right. Right. As Amelia Earhart. I think yeah. Made that really. Yeah. 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 Wow. I want to close by asking you a little bit about kind of the feminine dimension of the church, because obviously you, you're a priest, you're a father spiritually, you, you know, are a father in a sense to these men that you're forming. So you're kind of steeped in the masculine. I think you can make the case. Um, but, you know, there's a need for balance, the masculine, the feminine, you know, there's a harmony there, there's a complementarity. So where do you see like a feminine dimension in the church most prominently? Right. Um, I think a number of different levels, you know, the, the, the first and the most important is, um, you know, th that our understanding of greatness is different from the world's understanding of greatness. Mm -hmm. and for us, greatness is not measured by your capacity to manipulate or have authority over others, right? That, that you can use those things and use them well, and they're important things. Um, but our understanding of greatness is that of union with God, right? It's holiness. And that, as the church has always taught, you know, the greatest of all in heaven is, is Our Lady, mm -hmm. right? And so the, that the, the hierarchy of holiness in heaven will be headed by, by a woman. And, that, and the very fact that, that the church is called the bride of Christ, that there's a feminine understanding of the church, means that those, that, that characteristic, that feminine, the femininity of the church has to percolate through the whole church um, and to to our understanding of, of womanhood and of femininity and the way that we interact with with each other. I mean, certainly Christianity, I think, has been the world's greatest force for uh, the dignity of women and for the respect that is due to women, the equality, the radical equality, neither male nor female, neither slave nor freeman, you know, St. Paul, that, that radical equality in baptism and that women can become great saints and men can become um, great villains, you know, and, and, and there's no, and there's no sort of special privilege that you get for being a man. Um, there is an ordering on earth, which, you know, the, the sort of the, um, where there's going to be authority in the church and that authority is exercised in a certain way, um, by the Pope and by the bishops and so forth that we all are, are subject to. Um, but to recognize again, that that's not the most important thing. The most important thing, even in our own interactions, is not going to be power. I mean, the goal of life is not to gain power over right. others. The goal of life is to become a good, mature, um, and holy uh, individual. So I think keeping that as sort of the, the, the primary way of looking at this. Now, having said that, um, you know, there are a number of ways that 
that that femininity I think is lived out in the life of the church and um the saints are the first one right you see there are just so many witnesses of, of women saints both canonized and not canonized mm -hmm. and the influence that they have on the world as we know from our own reading of, of, of the history of the church that saints are the ones who really change history um, and those saints are both men and women i think there is i think there is a great equality in that you know if you um, even just if you look at the, whatever, the, the chronology of saints, and you can right. just sort of see the number of women going back to the very, very beginning from girls to, you know, young women to old women and, you know, to the very beginning of the church. So I think that that sense that the church has always respected that holiness of women. And then at a very practical level, like how the, how women are living out their genius, the feminine genius, as John Paul II wrote about in the life of the church today. I mean, I think sometimes there needs to be a greater um, involvement of, of women in kind of official church things. I think that there is something that women bring to the table that men don't bring as easily. And so I, I do think that that's important. Um, but at the same time, if we do that in such a way where it becomes either kind of tokenism, yeah. you know, we just need to get a woman here because she's a woman. I mean, there's right. something pretty insulting about that, I think, to women. <laughs> um, and or, or if it's done something as like this, well, we need to kind of balance the power of men. Well, it, well all, all we're doing there is we're importing kind of this set of values or these set of assumptions from the world into the church, which I think is is not particularly helpful. So, I mean, I think that, and, and something that happens, by the way, when when men are are kind of pushed, are sort of sidelined, and that can happen sometimes, or you go to a, you go to a parish, for example, and there's not a man to be seen, right? I mean, everyone <laughs> on the altar but the priest is a woman. Everyone on the pastoral council is a woman. Everyone right. who works in the office is a woman, right? I mean, and so, and what happened when men are shunted off to the side like that, um, sort of, and they feel like they're no longer needed. Um, that's where we get this kind of perpetual adolescence that has happened, I think, in the larger culture. And that sometimes can even infect kind of the church culture where men kind of, it's almost like they're in a pout, you know, they, they kind of, <laughs> they, they, they wait outside. I mean, there are some countries where, I mean, only women go to church, you know, right. oh, yeah, absolutely. Men, the, the men stay outside and, you know, smoke and drink and talk until the, until the women come out from, from church. And like, we don't want to move in that direction. And that happens in part because men were no longer seen to be needed uh, in the in the in the leadership of the church. So I think we have to have both. We need to continue to have both, um, and both well represented in these kind of official capacities. But I wouldn't want like when we say women involvement of the church to become immediately talking about institutions and structures and kind of the power base. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when we talk about women involvement of the church, we need to start where women are actually most powerful, which is in the family. Um, and say like, this is, so for example, somebody says he or she is a good Catholic and you say, well, why do you say he's a good Catholic? Well, because she's a lector at mass and because she's involved in this thing and that thing. And she brings, you know, those are all great things, beautiful things, but like, why don't we start with like, what kind of a mother she is, what kind of a wife she is, or a husband he is, or a father he is, because that's what makes a really great Catholic. And those are the people who are changing the world. Right. right. And I see that with the seminarians coming in. I mean, if I had one question I could ask the guy, if I was only allowed one question, it would be, tell me about your relationship with your parents. Really? Right? Because the influence that, that the parents have is just dramatic. Right. But I would say that if, if we can always, as if we focus on, first of all, where women and men both have the most influence, and then we can go out from there and say, well, what are some ways that we can tweak that to make sure that there's a proper sort of um, balance between the two? And I think we can always get better at that. Right, for sure. Yeah, I did think it was interesting. I think Pope Francis just recently appointed a couple of women to some, I don't know if you'd call them curial positions, but right. some kind of like leadership positions in mm -hmm. Rome. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, at the end of the day, I thought like, why not? You know, it's it's not a a threat to like, you know, holy orders or something like that. It's, right. you know, I mean, I agree with you. Like it shouldn't just be for the sake of being a woman, but at the same time, there there is like this almost unquantifiable distinction that like just a woman's presence can bring and i, I don't even know if i could characterize it but um yeah. it's kind of like i think edith stein has this quote where she says the church doesn't need what women have it needs what women are and there's just yeah. something kind of ontological there that that we we can bring i think that's exactly right and i i notice it i notice it just even in a in a meeting you know when there's when there's a woman present i mean and it's not that you know the men are on their better behaviors maybe that happens <laughs> But but it's just there is. And, and I think oftentimes she brings insights that that weren't there otherwise. And um, yeah, so the, the and I do think relationality in some ways is kind of where the genius of women often lies. You know, they're kind of they're almost an intuitive understanding of of um, relational dimensions, relation with each other, but also relationship with God. You know, that oftentimes there is a kind of 
and an, an immediate awareness of something that takes men a much more labor and kind of mental sort of you know meditation kind of discursive meditation to get to and um and i think contrarywise i think that there are ways that that men will bring a certain kind of that that the way of that the, the male ma mind works can often be very helpful for when he enters it when he's with a group of women you know mm -hmm. and giving confidence maybe where there wasn't confidence before right so yeah i think that that we can and, but i having said that i while we can always do better um I'm a convert, and I would say that you know the tradition that I come from, the Protestant tradition, despite all of its you know the way that it's kind of gone off the rails in certain respects. In some ways, it it was the reason it's gone off the rails is because it was conceived in a hyper masculine way, mm -hmm. right? And getting rid of the Blessed Virgin Mary, mm -hmm. you know, getting I mean, and all of these different ways that men became so kind of dominant and it became a very hard. Um, I, I remember Scott Hahn somewhere saying that Protestantism is like. Kind of a bachelor's apartment you know where there's a man <laughs> and a woman yeah so no decorations <laughs> yeah the decorations thing exactly that sort of thing like kind of the artistic flair the, the devotional life of the church these things which are more we would call them fem uh, 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 more, more feminine i suppose aspects of the life of the church were all stripped away mm -hmm. um and and when that happened you set they, they sort of set themselves up i think for this very strong reaction in the 19th and 20th century and the reason why I think it hasn't been as as egregious in the Catholic Church is because there's always been this feminine and this love for the feminine and the fact that we both are kind of living in this kind of masculine and feminine um, church. And so anyway, I, th I, I do think while we have ways that we can grow and do better, I also think we should be grateful for the beauty of, of the feminine contributions in the church already that have been there from the beginning. Right. No, I completely agree. I mean, I think when you look at any other world religion, um you know apart from maybe some sectors of like reform judaism you don't right. really see uh a feminine presence really whatsoever i mean you think about islam it's hyper hyper masculine you know you think about um you know a lot of i mean obviously orthodox judaism is is very very patriarchal um yeah i think catholicism does have kind of this unique facet where it's like you walk into a catholic church you're going to see obviously a crucifix but then you're going to see like lots of images of 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 women yeah typically whereas i mean in, in some religions depicting anybody would be taboo but i think especially depicting a woman would be like absolutely not <laughs> yeah 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 i think that's right yeah and i think we have a potential now where, where the work is becoming work, professional work is becoming much more um just uh very you know varied and the, the ways that people are sometimes working from home or partially at home or these right. hybrid situations and where you can have you know this Oftentimes, women will want to stay at home when their children are young and then return to the workforce later on. I think those sort of the potential for that sort of thing happening, I think, is much um, it, it's I think it's much easier to do now than it would have been, you know, not that long ago. Oftentimes, sure. women want to have some kind of part time work while they're raising children, you know, even if it's just something they can do from home or whatever it might be. I think so. I think also trying to explore these different ways that women can continue to stay professionally involved while at the same time being able to devote the time that they want to to their families. So I think there's a lot of potential and a lot of really wonderful opportunities that are coming coming for us. Oh, yeah. No, I always say the biggest factors in women's liberation are like the dishwasher, the washing machine, right. the microwave, you know, the Internet. Like it's it's a lot of technology because it's it, ultimately they're like labor saving devices where it's like, OK, I don't have to scrub every individual piece of clothing and I don't have yeah. to like pluck all the feathers off the turkey. Like, you know, you can kind of <laughs> shorten the time it takes to do these like very necessary household tasks. I mean you know, in the past, that was just a very intense amount of labor. Yep. I think yeah. that's right. Great. And hopefully we can find ways that we can also sort of expand those opportunities in the church, you know, where, right. where somehow that, you know, whatever we do, that we, we're making sure that women are involved in appropriate ways. I mean, I, I honestly think that, that that is going to be one of the great legacies of um, the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. It's not just women, but just lay people in general, like that this is, that there is a, first of all, there's a kind of healthy autonomy within the secular world of lay people, men and women, um, but also the importance of having men and women involved in uh, in the life of the church at pastoral councils and things like that, even yeah, in, the, in yeah. the institutional life. No, I mean, I think we take for granted the fact that, you know, maybe two centuries ago and before that, priests were the primary people who were educated, period. Right. You know, and yeah. so now you have a church where majority of people are are very highly educated you know literate obviously um but much more so beyond that so the, in a way they have more to contribute not not on like the level of like sanctity and grace because obviously intelligence doesn't depend upon that but 
you know, maybe in terms of like decision-making or, you know, um, I don't know, pastoral counseling, things like that. Like there's just more that the lay person has to contribute because they've been more equipped just because of the way the world has progressed. Yep. I think that's right. Yeah. Cool. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to to sit down with me, Father, today. That was great. I enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. Well, um, enjoy the rest of your day and, and I'll be sure to let you know when this comes out. Sounds great. Thanks, Mary Rose. Great. God bless you. All right. So you probably caught that earlier in the interview, I asked Father Griffin about the church's stance on not admitting gay men to seminary and to the priesthood. And I mentioned that some people suggest that rather than that eliminating all gay men from the priesthood, that would simply create a culture of a closet where you have people hiding something about themselves, and and that could even lead to to dangerous or repressed behavior. Um, And he reiterated the church's teaching, and he gave some reasons um, as to why that is the case. But he also mentioned um, what many have described as the link between homosexual priests and the sex abuse crisis. I think in particular he was referring to the, um, the Pennsylvania grand jury report that came out a few years ago that noted that 80% of the abuse cases were same-sex abuse cases. So it was a priest who was male abusing a, a minor who was also male. And most of those cases, the, the victim was what they call post-pubescent, and so I'm guessing that means probably older than like 11 or 12, um, but certainly still a minor, um, I would imagine, in most of those cases. Obviously, you can abuse somebody who's 18, 19, 20, but we're primarily talking about people who are below the age of consent. And I think it's important to distinguish same-sex abuse with same-sex orientation. So in other words, a male abusing an underage male versus a male who is sexually attracted primarily to males. You know, if a priest is gay and he wants to be with another man, he will have no problem finding a plethora of willing adult male partners. But it's very different if the person that he goes after is underage. Um, It's the same thing if you have a, a, a priest who's heterosexual who wants to be with a woman. Again, I don't think he would have a problem finding willing female partners, but that's not the same as abusing an underage woman. You know, I think the the problem with this, besides just, um, you know, I think it, it leads to a, a um, you know a negative and dangerous stereotype about gay people that you know they all just must be pedophiles, which which I'm not implying that that father meant by that. Um, but I think another dangerous problem is that it misunderstands the sex abuse crisis. Um, The sex abuse crisis is not primarily a failure in chastity. It's not primarily a lust problem. You know, priests take a vow of celibacy. Um, I I have no doubt that that's immensely difficult. Um, I also have no doubt that it is possible and that most priests live it out um, with with great uh, success and great charity. But when somebody abuses a minor, when somebody um, takes advantage of a a person for, you know, exploits them for for sexual gain, that's not the same as somebody who can't control their passions. You know, somebody who gets carried away, somebody who who breaks a vow of chastity. Um, And I think that was part of the problem early on, you know, why priests often got moved around is, is because the bishop said, oh, well, he must have this you know, thing for this particular person, we'll just move them somewhere else, and the bond will be broken. Um, But that's not how abusers work. They tend to, um, you know, find another victim, as it were. Um, And so I think we have to recognize that, 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 you know, sex abuse scandal is not primarily about lust or chastity, um, if we want to really protect protect victims and to advocate for victims, um, you know, I talked with Meg Hunter Kilmer in the episode last week about the story of Maria Goretti and how she's often held up as a martyr for purity, a martyr for chastity, because she refused to give in to the whims of her would be rapist. Um, and I think a- again. 
not to detract from the holiness or the sanctity of Maria Goretti, but the church has always recognized that being a victim of sexual assault or, or abuse is, is not the same as a failure of chastity. Um, and so, you know, Alessandro, the, the would-be assailant uh, of Maria Goretti, well, I guess he wasn't an assailant because he stabbed her to death. Um, but, you know, the, the fact that when she refused his advances, he, he took, uh, he went to violent extremes, I think shows that this wasn't just, you know, a lust-based desire. Um, often with abusers, there's, there's a, a power dynamic there. They specifically target people who they have power over. Um, you know, so I, I want to make that clarification. Um, like I said at the beginning, I hope that he would agree with that. Um, but, but just to clarify, you know, same sex abuse is not the same as same sex orientation, just as opposite sex abuse is not the same as heterosexual orientation. We have to protect victims. We have to be educated about the reasons why people abuse. And, and like I said, it doesn't seem to be a primarily... Um, lust-based motivation. I'm sure that's involved, but I think there's something much more sinister. Uh, and, and this is not just me saying that. I think uh, you know most psychologists would agree. This is definitely a topic I, I think we could explore in more detail. If you can suggest anyone who would be a great guest to interview regarding this topic, definitely let me know. Send me an email at thecrabandthecross at gmail.com. Now, again, I don't make this clarification as an attack on Father Griffin. So if you agree with what I've said, please don't go after him. He's citing a lot of um, respected scholars when he makes that comment. Um, I don't think it's coming from a place of animus whatsoever. Um, but I, again, that's all the more reason to make this clarification. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening. Um, and I hope you have a great week.